Trinity Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in that Bible to page 178, and you would be at James chapter 3. Every year, tens of thousands of injuries come from people tripping and slipping and having a fall. And the reason why is that there are hazards everywhere. And three of the most common causes of slips and trips in our physical world are, number one, messy, cluttered areas, number two, poor visibility or inadequate lighting, and then number three, running or walking too fast. Now, my three most memorable trips and falls fall into all three of those categories. My first one, which I shared with you two weeks ago, was due to a messy, cluttered area. My second one, which I shared last week, was due to poor visibility and inadequate lighting, and the one I want to share with you today is very definitely due to running or walking too fast. Now, this event happened in the Wichita Mountains, and we were there in the Wichita Mountains at a father-daughter campout. And I've been there many times with uh, father-son campouts, father-daughter campouts, and one of the things that I have always enjoyed is when we're going to climb the mountain, for me to sort of scurry on ahead of everybody else. You know, it was a little bit of a macho thing, you know, trying to show that I'm really not too old. And that's what I was always doing. I was actually bounding up the mountain, up the trail ahead of everybody else. But this particular time, I'm bounding my way along and my toe catches on a rock. And I know I'm on my way down. And I would have been just fine because I, I know how to fall. I had my hands out in front of me, and if I would have fallen, I would have scuffed my palms up pretty good, but I would have been okay. But what I didn't realize when I started to fall is that to my left was this rock that was jutting out quite far. And I was, as I was there going down, I jammed the two middle fingers on my left hand very severely on that rock. Now... How many people have ever done that? Let me see how many, raise your hands high, you've jammed your fingers real severely. Okay, so most of us or many of us have experienced that. And I remember the first time that happened to me. I was in the third grade, I was over at Robbie Anson's house in Glen Rock, New Jersey, and he was introducing me to high jumping. And uh, I was high jumping, I was loving this, this high jumping thing is really cool, but one of the times when I went over the bar, I came down and jammed the fingers on my hand really severely. And as a third grader, uh, that took me about two weeks to recover from. Now, the last time I remembered uh, jamming my fingers before this time in the Wichita Mountains, I remember that it took me about six weeks to recover from those severely jammed fingers. So I realized, you know, I've fallen, I've jammed my hand real badly, I'm older than I used to be, so I'm thinking in my head, this is probably going to take me double as long to recover or my, my hand is fully healed up. I figured it'd take me 12 weeks. Three months, I'll be fine. Well, three months came and went, four months, five months, six months. Now I'm getting a little concerned because my hand is not healing. 
And so I arranged to go to a hand doctor about that to see if there was something I didn't know anything about or, or I was missing on this or if there was a problem. And he, I remember he came out, he looked at my hand, did some tests with me, and he said, he said, one thing I can tell you is you don't have arthritis in your hand. That's a good thing. And so basically I said to him, well, what's the problem then? I mean, I got hurt six months ago. Why is my hand not healed up? And he did just what doctors can do. He kind of looked at me a little bit, and I turned his head, and he said, well, don't you realize that you are older? And he said, it actually could take you, you know, a year to heal up from this. You know how long it took me? 18 months. A year and a half to recover from those jammed fingers. So, I will no longer be bounding up the mountain trying to be macho in front of everybody else because I don't want to go through that. Next time, it could be two years to heal. There's a lot of hazards that cause slips and trips in regular life, but there are common spiritual hazards that can cause slips and trips in our spiritual life. In fact, tens of thousands of people who are believers and followers of Christ slip and trip spiritually each week. And what we're doing in this little series is we're looking at two of the most common ones. We've titled the series, Dealing with the Double T's. Trip hazards, two of them. The first is temptation, which we've looked at in the first two weeks. And then secondly is our tongue is a spiritual trip hazard, our speech. And we're going to be seeing this from the book of James, chapter number three. Now, Kit Hughes has said this about the first part of James, chapter three. He says, this is the most penetrating and convicting exposition of the tongue anywhere in literature sacred or secular. And in James chapter 3, James will be pulling no punches with us. And if you have your Bibles open, I want to read the first eight verses of James 3, invite you to follow along in your Bible. James writes, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Now, our plan as we look at this trip hazard of the tongue is to do things over three different weeks. This week, we're going to look at basically elementary school. We're going to go to elementary school on the tongue. Then... Lord willing, next week we're going to go to secondary school on the tongue, and then the third week we'll be going to graduate school on the tongue. So that's our plan in these weeks that lay before us. But today we want to go to elementary school on the tongue, and we're going to be looking at today two things. 
First of all, we're going to look at its size and see that it's small but significant. And then secondly, we're going to look at its effects, which we're going to see are far-reaching and highly potent. So that's our plan, those two things. Its size, small but significant, and then its effects, which are far-reaching and highly potent. So let's go to elementary school on the tongue. And first of all, we're going to see its size. Its size is small but significant. You ever think about it? I mean, you have a two-inch by three-inch slab of muscle that is in your mouth that includes our taste buds and our saliva glands. A small thing. But here's the issue. Our tendency is to underestimate the power and the influence and the effect of our tongue. And to point that out to us in James 3, he's going to use three illustrations of the tongue. A horse's bit, a ship's rudder, and a spark of fire. Go back to James 3, look at the middle of verse 2 when it says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Now, think about a bit. You know, a bit is a small piece of metal that goes in a horse's mouth, and you no doubt are familiar that it is connected with some reins. And the idea is that the rider holds the reins and uses the bit to direct the horse. A bit is a very small thing, but it is significant because it can influence and direct a large, powerful horse. When my family lived in New Jersey, we um, often would go to visit our cousins in Pennsylvania and uh, I remember a trip we, we made when I was nine years old. And our cousins had two horses. And one of the horses was named Pepper, brown horse. And it was named Pepper, I think, for a good reason. And so we had a bunch of little cousins that didn't really know much about riding that were riding the two different horses. And my turn came to ride Pepper. And as I was getting up onto Pepper... I dropped the reins. Now, Pepper, which had been irritated by the fact that a bunch of little kids were riding her, decided, this is my opportunity. And so with the reins dangling down, Pepper took off. And Pepper had a purpose. And her purpose was, I'm going to lose this irritating nine-year-old that's on my back. She took off directly for a tree with a very low-hanging branch. And the idea was, I'm getting rid of that boy. Well, I'm headed for this branch, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, at a full gallop, this is a problem. So I went down, bent down, and hugged the neck of the horse, got underneath the tree. She started heading for more trees. And I'm thinking to myself, I could end up in West Virginia, you know, ducking trees all along the way. And so here's what I did. Now, I, don't, I didn't view myself as Clint Eastwood or John Wayne or anything, but I thought, i got to do something about this. I remember grabbing the horn on the saddle, and I bent all the way down and grabbed those reins and brought them back up, and you knew what I did. I pulled back on those. And that bit began to do its thing. And Pepper came to a stop. 
You see, a bit, it's very small, but it is significant. And we need to think about our tongue that way. We need to not underestimate, even though it's a little small thing here, don't underestimate its influence on others. Now, there's a second illustration that he uses of the tongue, and that's a ship's rudder. Look at verse 4. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're still directed, it says, by a very small rudder. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. You know, even in the ancient world, they had rather large sailing vessels. You go to Acts chapter 27, it talks about a large sailing vessel that held 276 people and cargo. The historian Josephus talks about one sailing vessel that held 600 people. You could have a large ship, but it's the little rudders that direct it. When Janet and I had an opportunity to go to San Diego not too many years ago, we went to visit the USS Midway, the aircraft carrier that is there. And if you ever have an opportunity to go on an aircraft carrier, you got to go. It is amazingly huge, amazingly enormous. And yet it has these rudders, these thin little blades that control and direct the whole thing. You see, a rudder is small, but it is significant. My favorite story that relates to a rudder and a ship is a story that relates to the World War II German battleship, the Bismarck. And the Bismarck was rolled out by the Germans when the war was first starting. Bismarck was a huge ship had 2,200 crew on it. The Bismarck had 13-inch thick armor all the way around it. Had huge guns on it. Um, The range of those guns, check this out, 23.6 miles. A lot of ships couldn't even get close to it before they were already being shelled by the Bismarck. The shells weighed 1,700 pounds. It was the largest warship commissioned at the time. And I first became enamored with the Bismarck in 1960, again, nine years old, when Johnny Horton came out with a song called Sink the Bismarck. And it was a great song. I mean, it's just very catchy. In May of 1941, the world had just begun. The Germans had the biggest ship. It had the biggest guns. The Bismarck was the fastest ship that ever sailed the sea. I mean, it's very catchy, all right? Love the song and and love the story of the Bismarck. You know what happened to the Bismarck after the British tried to, to sink the ship? They couldn't do it. Couldn't get close enough to it or was too fast to outrun everybody. But what happened is some British planes, you know, would come along and they would drop the torpedoes into the water They dropped a torpedo into the water and hit the Bismarck and jammed the rudder. And the Bismarck found itself only able to go in circles. Couldn't run, couldn't avoid anybody, and of course eventually surrounded by the British and sunk. Now, if you live back in those days, that was a big thing. You know, the headlines 
on the newspaper, Bismarck sunk. Why? Because of a rudder. Small thing, yet very significant. Please look again at verse 5. What does it say there? So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. In other words, Jim's saying, don't underestimate. It can be very significant when it comes to slips and trips in our spiritual life. So the first illustration is that of a horse's bit. The second one is that of a ship's rudder. The third one is of a spark of fire. Look at the last part of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The idea here is of a, a match or a spark. The greatest illustration of a, a small spark having a great effect was the Chicago Fire in 1871. See, the Chicago Fire in 1871 started in O'Leary's barn. And someone was in O'Leary's barn milking a cow. And while they were milking a cow, they accidentally kicked over a lantern. And it began to burn. And ultimately, three and a half miles of the city of Chicago burned. 100,000 homes were burnt to the ground. 300 people were killed. And in that day, it caused $400 million of damage. That would be, in today's dollars, I'm sure, billions of dollars. All caused by a little spark that got things going. I've shared with you before that my wife's parents' home had a severe fire, the largest residential fire in the history of Lincoln, Nebraska. All started by just a little spark of flame. See, Lewis and Tootsie Boyd are here, uh, seated right over there, and, and I'll never forget their story with their home, where someone got out of a vehicle over here at the corner of Rock Creek Road and 36th Avenue and, and lit a little fire in the field, and, and there was a heavy, heavy southwestern wind blowing, and that just fanned the flames, and that fire went several miles ferociously. And, of course, it engulfed Lewis and Tootsie Boyd's home. It's a, just a small spark, and yet it's significant in its impact. Now, I want to remind you that the subject matter we're looking at today is not a horse's bit or a ship's rudder or a spark of fire. What we're talking about is how our tongues can be a trip hazard in our spiritual life. And we frequently underestimate the influence. You see, how we use our tongues and what we say with this little instrument, that's really what we're talking about. And Today we're going to elementary school on the tongue, and the first thing we've seen is its size, which is small yet significant. The second thing we want to look at is its effects, and how they are far-reaching and highly potent. I don't know if you noticed it when we read the passage, but look again at verse 6. You read verse 6, and it's just startling. It's a sobering reminder of the potentiality of the far-reaching, highly potent effect of our tongue. And in order to convince us of that, I think, James chooses to stress the negative side of what our tongue can bring. 
He says in verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. In other words, it has extensive potential for evil. And he says, it defiles our entire body. It will stain every area of our life. It sets afire the course of our life. It will affect all of our relationships. It is set on fire by hell, he says. It's a reflection ultimately of hell. An uncontrolled tongue is a tool of Satan. You see, he loves to use the flames of anger and the flames of hate and the the flames of slander to scorch us and other people. Incredible amount of effects, far-reaching and highly potent. One of the things I miss the most in the modern world is Paul Harvey because Paul Harvey was a great storyteller. And he told these stories which were called the rest of the story. In fact, I've even gotten on Amazon and ordered several books of Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. But I want to tell you one of his rest of the stories. It's a story that goes back to 1899 in Denver, Colorado. And there were four newspaper reporters there from four different newspapers in Denver. And it is Saturday evening, and they're there trying to come up with an idea for a lead story in the Sunday editions of their four different newspapers. So they're just there in a bar drinking together. They're thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to have as the big story in the Sunday edition? And they, they really said, we've got nothing. And then as they were drinking beer together, these four reporters from four different papers said, what if we faked a story? Well, what story could we fake? Well, one guy named John said, well, how about this one? What if we said this? There were a group of American engineers from New York, and they were stopping over in Denver on their way to China. And the idea is that the Chinese government was making plans to demolish the Great Wall of China. And these guys from New York flying through Denver on their way there were going to go bid on the job. And one of them said, well, why would China want to tear down the Great Wall of China? Someone said, well, what if we said they were going to do this? They wanted to, to, to do an act that would symbolize international goodwill. They wanted to say, we're welcoming foreign trade, so we're going to tear down the wall. Well, by 11 p.m., they had worked out all the details, and they said, this is what we're going to go with. So after leaving the Oxford Bar, they went over to the Windsor Hotel, no doubt paying a little bit of money there at the the person working the hotel register, and and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sign in as four fictitious people from New York, and we want you as a desk clerk to tell anyone that asked that four New Yorkers had arrived And they had been interviewed by reporters, and they had left very early the next morning to head to California on the way to China. And so, thus they turned in that story, and the Denver newspapers carried the story, all four of them, on the front page. One of the headlines that Sunday read, Great Chinese Wall Doomed, Peking Seeks World Trade. A phony story fabrication concocted by four guys in a bar. But their story was taken quite seriously, and as happens today, it was picked up by newspapers all around the United States of America, and then by newspapers all abroad. 
And when the Chinese learned that the Americans were sending basically a demolition crew to tear down their national monument, a lot of people became enraged. But in particular, there were some members of a secret society in China who were very volatile, and they really hated any idea of foreign intervention. And so, inspired by what they believed to be a true worldwide story, began to rampage against the foreign embassies in Peking. Not only did they do that, but check this out. They slaughtered hundreds of missionaries in China. By the time two months had gone by, some 12,000 troops from six different countries had to come in to the nation of China to try to protect their own countrymen who were living there. And the bloodshed which followed, which was sparked by a hoax invented in a bar room in Denver, became an international scandal known, of course, today to every high school history student as the Boxer Rebellion. And now you know the rest of the story. You see, the effects of our tongue are far-reaching and highly potent. And you know, if we had time today, we could take testimonies. We could take testimonies of those of you who have been hurt by harmful, painful, caustic comments made by another person. If we had the time for testimonies, we could get testimonies of biting, belittling judgments that were delivered on you by a parent who told you you would never amount to anything or you could never get it right, and that still burns a hole in your soul. If we had a time for testimonies, we could hear testimonies about a stinging slander that was shot at you by someone you thought was a friend. We had time for testimonies. We could hear testimonies of harsh, acidic slams that you received from your spouse that cut you deeply and crushed your heart. We had time for testimonies. We could hear of cruel, malicious criticisms that were peppered at you and are being peppered at you by coworkers and fellow students. If we had time for testimonies, we would hear about sharp, cutting teasing remarks from a brother or sister that just won't relent. Is it any wonder that James says in the last part of verse 8 of the tongue, he says, it is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It's a restless evil, always ready to pounce. Has the potential always to wound and to maim full of deadly poison. This idea of the tongue and poison was communicated by David, King David, in Psalm 140, verse 3, when he said this. This is what he was experiencing. He says, their tongues sting like a snake. The poison of a viper drips from their lips. You know, it'd be an incredible shock if suddenly right now I sig signaled and we had some men come in here from both sides in the back doors, and they had these boxes. And then in my signal, they take the boxes and they turn the boxes over, and what comes out of those boxes are poisonous snakes. Can you imagine what would, what would it be like if I did that? I mean, you'd go, this is nuts, poisonous snakes swirling around at your feet. Now, we're not going to do that. But can you imagine what it would be like if I did that? And yet here's what's interesting. 
Our unchecked tongues can do every bit as much damage. What did David say? Their tongues sting like a snake. The poison of a viper drips from their lips. Our tongue has the potential effect of being verbal cyanide. Now, what I want to do now is just hit pause for a moment. And I want to ask you, how is your speech? How has your speech been recently with your spouse? How has your speech been recently with your children or your teenagers, if you have them? How's your speech been with your brother and your sister? How's your speech been with your roommates? Has your speech been more belittling and demeaning, slicing and shredding? Have you been saying things behind somebody's back that you would never say to their face? Have there been crude and abrasive words coming out of your mouth that do nothing but pollute the hearts of those who receive them? What's your speech been like? You know, the misuse of our tongue really amounts to spiritual arson. You know, as we go through this, this whole idea of the tongue and the fact that it is a trip hazard, we're going to have a theme verse. We're going to be looking at it every week. The great verse to memorize, Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about that for a moment. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What words are coming out of my mouth? Are they words of death? that wound and discourage? Or are they words of life that invigorate and give energy to people? You can just jot down the reference, Proverbs 16, 24. This is what it says there. Pleasant words are a honeycomb. We might just say in our lingo today, are honey. Pleasant words are honey, sweet to the soul. Pleasant words will affect how you view yourself. Pleasant words are honey. They're sweet to the soul and healing to bones. They will affect how you feel. Not only how you view yourself, but how you feel. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, men and women, we have folks all around us. They may be at work. They may be in your neighborhood who are burdened with illness. They're burdened with money problems. They're under incredible pressure from work, incredible pressure from school. They are overwhelmed with discouragement and failure. And we have an opportunity for our words to be an oasis of encouragement in a desert of despair. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Recently, we took a trip, Janet and myself and, and our daughter Jennifer, to New York City. And when we were coming back, we were flying from LaGuardia Airport in New York 
to Memphis on our way to Oklahoma City. And when we were getting on the plane there in New York, we were getting on a 757. And this is the way, I always have carry-on luggage with me. A lot of times we're going to speak, I don't want to just give everything to the airlines, you know, to lose. And so we have carry-on luggage. And I had carry-on luggage. And and listen, when I'm getting on the plane, I want to get on as quickly as I can because I know the overhead room will go pretty quickly. And so I'm always trying to get on as quickly as I can. This time we weren't on very early. And when I got on the plane, I'm looking down the aisle and I see so many of these overhead bins already closed. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, no. I hate having that thing down by my feet. And I was really concerned about Janet. My, Janet had a, a little larger bag, overhead bag. Now, it's legal size, but it was a little bigger. And I was concerned. She was several people behind me at that point as people sort of got together and, and you know, merged to get on the plane. And uh, I, I talked to the stewardess about it. I noticed that she was going through and kind of helping to rearrange some of these. And I just said, you know, my wife's got a, a bag back here and I, about four people behind me. I hope she can get her bag up there. And then I watched her do something. Now, I've seen... I've seen, you know how most stewards and stewardesses are with overhead bin space. Generally, they just sit there and watch the chaos happen. Occasionally, if someone can't get a bag in straight, they'll walk over and they'll, you know, turn one around. But this stewardess was amazing. She was going from bin to bin to bin, rearranging them all and making sure that they were packed in properly. And some of them she even took across over here and moved over here. And so, oh, you've got a bag? Well, then, okay, we can get it up here now. And then I noticed that she got my wife's bag up, and then it just kept going on and on and on, and she kept doing this. It amazed me. I said, I've never seen anyone do anything like that, basically almost rearranging the whole thing just to make sure everybody could get their bags up there. And what was really interesting is I was seated toward the back of the plane. As she came back to the plane back towards me, I just put my hand out like this to high-five her. And I said, that is the best job I have ever seen of anyone helping people get their bags up there. I said, that was awesome. You just should have seen her face light up. You know how many times people who work in airplanes get any positive comments? And what was really interesting is later on in the flight as she came back by me, she just put her hand on my shoulder. And she said, thanks for that really kind encouragement. See, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and most of what we hear are death words. But it is so refreshing to hear life words. Well, as we said today, we're just going to elementary school on the tongue, and and we said we were going to do two things, and we're going to look at its size, how it's small, but significant, and also its effects, which are far-reaching and highly potent. Lord willing, next week, we'll go a little deeper as we go to secondary school on the tongue. But as we walk away from the text of Scripture today, I want us to think about some life response that we can have, and I'm going to suggest two things. We need to reflect and we need to focus. What do I mean by that? Well, First of all, I'm going to suggest by way of life response that you reflect on your verbal exports to others. Spend a little time reflecting on what have I been exporting to other people. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What have I been exporting? Have I been exporting criticisms and and cutting remarks? Have I been throwing spears and arrows that wound and hurt? 
Remember, pleasant words are sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And I would like to suggest, as you reflect on your verbal exports, that you ask God to open up your eyes. Maybe something that you really haven't been noticing. So, reflect on your verbal exports. Secondly, focus on unleashing words of life to other people. Focus on words that build up. Focus on words that comfort. Focus on words that encourage and affirm, that bring grace, that are an oasis of encouragement. Because that's the kind of words that you want to receive. And that's the kind of words that we ought to give as we give life to others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much again for the Word of God. We thank you that it is so practical we, we thank you for the opportunity to just be reminded of even elementary school-level issues related to our tongue. And Father, may we never forget that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and may we be life-givers with our words rather than hurting, harming, and discouraging. Use us to be an oasis in a desert of discouragement to other people, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.